0: Welcome to this special live edition of What to Know. I'm Dr. John Warner, Executive Vice President for Health System Affairs at UT Southwestern Medical Center. We created this program at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic with our community in mind. With so much evolving information, we want to share what our medical and scientific experts are learning in real time. Today, I'm joined by four of our clinical faculty, Dr. Julie Trevetti, Medical Director of Infection Prevention at UT Southwestern, Dr. Carly Estelle, Chief of Infection Prevention at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Dr. Jeffrey McKinney, Vice Chair for Pediatric Education and in Pediatric Infectious Disease at our partner Children's Health. And monitoring your questions in our chat box is Dr. James Brad Coutrell, Medical Director of Antimicrobial Stewardship for UT Southwestern Hospital and Clinics. Before we turn to your questions, we wanna start with the latest updates, beginning with a snapshot of what's, what it's like in Texas hospitals right now and what our UT. Southwestern forecasting model tells us we can expect moving forward. Dr. Trevetti?:
1: Thank you, Dr. Warner, for that introduction, and um, thank you all for the opportunity to be able to be here and share some information with you on the state of COVID. you go to the first slide. So We want to start with COVID-19 trends in the state of Texas. The map on the left here is showing basically the hot spots in the state of Texas. The darker red areas are regions in which the number of cases per 100,000 individuals are higher, sometimes exceeding almost 250 per 100,000 persons. And you can see that many counties within the state of Texas have this darker red and orange color. The map on the right side is showing the vaccinations in the state of Texas. The darker green areas are the counties that have a higher percentage of residents over the age of 12 that are fully vaccinated. What we want to point out is that if you were to overlay these two maps, you would see that the areas that have high vaccination rates are also the areas that have the lower number of cases per 100,000 persons and also lower numbers of hospitalizations. Next slide. So then moving on towards trends in COVID-19 cases, um, we're going to be focusing here now on some of the work from our amazing UT Southwestern forecasting team. They have incorporated information on testing, diagnoses, hospitalizations, as well as trends in masking and other types of non-pharmacologic interventions to really help us understand what we might expect to see in the future um, in the state of Texas and in the Metroplex. So the the graph on the left is showing basically the percent positivity of all the tests done for COVID-19 in Texas. And we're currently at around 16% and have pretty have stayed steady in that area um, for the past couple of weeks. The graph on the right is showing the number of confirmed COVID-19 patients in North Texas hospitals. And you know, one thing that's reassuring here is that we have begun to see a slight decrease in the number of patients hospitalized over the past one to two weeks. But we are still about 24% higher than where we were one month ago. Next slide. This graph here is allowing us to take a deeper look at Dallas County. The map on the left, um, this is a heat map, basically looking at the number of cases of COVID-19 per 100,000 individuals by different age groups. The darker red areas are indicating higher numbers of cases, so almost 600 600 per 100,000 persons. And what we can see is that over the past few weeks, the 5 to 10 to 15 to 20-year-old age groups are really the ages that have seen um, pretty significant numbers of cases. The heat map on the right now is breaking down the same information, but by different different cities within Dallas County. Again, the darker red indicates a higher number of cases per 100,000 persons. And while there are certainly hot spots within Dallas County, what we can see from here is that over the past several weeks, nearly all cities within Dallas County have seen an increase in the number of cases of COVID-19. Next slide. So this is a graph, this is a, a slide here looking at COVID-19 hospital ad- admissions in the state, um, sorry, in Collin County, Dallas County, Denton County, and Tarrant County. The pink line is the pediatric age group, so those under the age of 18 years old. And what we can see is that, especially in Collin and Dallas County, but even in the other two counties, while we have seen an increase overall in all people, um, in all ages being admitted to area hospitals, Um, In Collin and Dallas County, we have seen a pretty pronounced increase in the number of children being admitted to area hospitals. Um, And then also in Dallas County, seeing the 18 to 49 age group, really even exceeding the numbers that we saw in the winter surge with individuals who were over the age of 65. Currently at UT Southwestern, we have about 53 patients hospitalized, about 15 of whom are in the intensive care unit. Our partner institution, Parkland Hospital and Health System has currently a little over 150 patients hospitalized with about 24 to 25 in the intensive care unit. Um, We are hoping that over the next few weeks, we will start to see at least these numbers of hospitalized cases start to level out and hopefully decrease. Next slide. So looking at this map here, this is basically COVID-19 hospitalizations in Dallas County. Um, Looking at the past, present, and future forecasting. There are two things that I wanna point out here. One is the black line, which is the actual number of occupied beds since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, And the blue line here is really showing the estimated number of hospitalizations for the last three weeks and then moving forward. And what we are hoping to see and what we are expecting here is to see this slight downward trend in the number of individuals who are hospitalized. What's impressive about this is that this is really um, a lot of work based on our forecasting team showing a lot of historical and actual future accuracy with many of the predictions as far as the number of new cases we can expect to see as well as hospitalizations, next slide. This is a slide looking at masking and vaccination survey responses in North Texas. The top two graphs here are looking at masking behaviors with the top one showing an increase in self-reported masking. So we have seen that there was a significant decrease in the amount of masking in the four counties compared to where we were in March and April of this year, but we are seeing an increase over the past one to two months. The second graph is basically what individuals are reporting about other people's behaviors and how much are they seeing other people masking. And here we have seen a slight increase, although not nearly at the levels where we were um, in the winter surge. And the bottom graph here is basically looking at individuals who have stated that they have either received the COVID-19 vaccine or are interested in receiving the vaccine. And these percentages remain pretty high. Next slide. So Dallas County's trajectory still depends on our behavior and vaccination success. COVID-19 hospitalizations are expected to decline over the next several weeks, although we do see some stressors on many of the pediatric resources here. Our current behaviors are the orange line. So this is basically if we have an absence of mask wearing and no type of social distancing or business restrictions in place. And we can see that if we were to improve our masking behaviors um, and perhaps even also improving on the other non pharmacologic interventions, such as social distancing and restricting visits to retail and other types of indoor facilities, we do have the ability to be able to drastically and, and significantly improve the number of cases of COVID 19 in our region, as well as improving the number of beds. Um, as far as people who are hospitalized for COVID-19 in our area. And those are the blue and the green lines here. Next slide. So I will turn it back to you, Dr. Warner.
0: Thank you, Dr. Tavetti. Many of you shared questions in advance of our programming. We really appreciate you doing that. One of the top themes, children. So let me turn to Dr. Jeffrey McKinney for more on COVID-19 in school aged children.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. We are quite busy in the pediatric world now, and uh, we're seeing just really heroic efforts by our nurse colleagues and intensivists and frontline providers in the community, and even things like our ECMO teams that are putting some children on heart-lung bypass because this illness can be quite severe in them as well. We can move to the next slide. Um, This is actually a paper that Dr. Treviti mentioned in a previous uh, What to Know session. I really like it, it's from the United Kingdom. We're learning a lot about this disease from worldwide scientific and clinical research. The take-home point of this figure, which comes from a really creative study in the United Kingdom where they had people record their symptoms by cell phone, Uh, more than a quarter million participants of children who'd been diagnosed with a positive COVID test, is this shows you the symptoms that they were reporting. I think that in addition to this being sort of an aesthetically pleasing slide, it has some important lessons. Uh, One is I cannot just look at someone and tell they have COVID and no one can. And that's one of the real challenges here. The fact that there can be children infected with COVID that have non-specific or even silent symptoms has been a real challenge for us. I will point out the anosmia comment uh, that's about four or five down. That is a fairly specific but not sensitive finding. I have a dear friend who's one of the graduates of our UT Southwestern residency program who still cannot smell after getting COVID probably in his office. Next slide. Uh, This reiterates at a regional, and for those of you who are joining us outside of this region, if you'd like a national level using the Health and Human Services regional reporting, this reiterates the trends that we've been noticing locally in that this is increasingly affecting children, including those who need to be hospitalized. Next slide. And then the other thing that you may have heard about in the news is there's this interesting presentation called MISC, Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children. Uh, it looks a little bit like Kawasaki's disease, but it appears to be different. One of the challenging elements of this is some of the children who get this MISC had no symptoms whatsoever about two or three weeks earlier. This is part of the disease that we're figuring out how to deal with and we're having to adjust to as the pandemic evolves. Next slide. And then this I think is an interesting report from the MMWR from the CDC that points out the challenges of Delta. So the Delta variant is much more transmissible. This was a a case report from a school in California which illustrates some important principles. An unvaccinated teacher, who had mild symptoms, but she thought that maybe it was just her allergies, took off her mask long enough to read to her elementary school class and proceeded to infect 12 of the 24 children with the seating chart shown at left. Uh, If you move on to the next slide, this investigation by the CDC subsequently showed with this epidemiologic study, secondary transmission, first to people in the class, then to people who came over to those children's homes for sleepovers, then to their relatives, This next slide shows that sort of transmission pattern as well, which just reiterates that things are happening with COVID transmission that we never know about as an individual who may have the virus and can spread it to secondary and tertiary and cases beyond that. Next slide, please. So what do we do with kids and sending them to school? This is hard. Uh, The CDC has a very helpful website that's been updated and I think gives very thoughtful, common sense, and scientifically directed advice. The main overarching theme is try to figure out if they have COVID. Try to get a test so you can figure that out. And then also build a relationship with your caregiver, your pediatrician, so that you don't have somebody who stays home from a semester of school because they haven't have asthma, or they haven't have allergies. Trying to figure out if they do or don't have COVID with the benefit of the really high quality tests is central to these strategies. Next slide. And then we'll probably talk about uh, news that may roll out even during this meeting in terms of what advisory committees are suggesting. It looks like the Pfizer vaccine, the first to reach the point in its study to share its data does induce a strong immune response in younger children. This could be wonderful news. Next slide. And then also I think because this is an evolving story, You're knowing where to go for trusted sources of information and updates. I've mentioned some already, the CDC, the FDA, the American Academy of Pediatrics has updated guidelines. And then I believe my last slide references this resource which has short snippets with pediatricians around the country talking about the sorts of questions that continue to come up. I think that's all I have. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr.
0: McKinney for those updates. Before we get to our question and answer portion of the program, I've asked Dr. Carole Estelle to discuss what has been dominating so many of the headlines, booster doses. Dr. Estelle?
3: Yes, thank you so much for having me. This question really is at the top of the minds of many, many individuals. Um, So next slide, please. We'll discuss some of the factors that are looked at when considering boosters for the population. The top figure here shows us the difference in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths of those who are fully vaccinated in the blue, which remains very low, compared to those not fully vaccinated in the black, which has much higher incidence in not only deaths and hospitalizations, but also just the positive cases for those who are not vaccinated. And as has been discussed, the Delta variant is much more contagious than the other variants and is now predominant variant in the U.S. and here in Texas. When looking at these comparisons of vaccinated versus unvaccinated since the Delta became the most common variant, fully vaccinated people have five times the reduced risk of infection, more than 10X reduction in the the risk of hospitalization, and more than 10X lower risk of death compared to those who are not vaccinated. Next slide. And it's important to note that while the vaccine effectiveness against Delta is somewhat reduced from alpha and wild type variants that we've had previously, all of the currently available vaccines are still highly efficacious at preventing urgent care visits and hospitalizations, even across the age spectrum, in the months since Delta became predominant, showing that um, this high level of efficacy is maintained uh, with Delta um, in, in real, real life settings. And so we can see with Pfizer and Moderna, Pfizer reaching 77 to 80% efficacy at presenting this more severe illness and Moderna 92 to 98% effective um, and J&J being 60 to 65% effective and still having high levels of effectiveness in our elderly and our younger population. Next slide. One category of reasons that we consider repeat injections is the impact of the variants themselves that we just talked about. But another is uh, when we look at is waning immunity. And in this figure from Pfizer's VRPAC briefing, they demonstrate that the adjusted vaccine effectiveness over time does decline. Next slide. Additional consideration is also given to immunocompromised patient populations. They're considered separately because baseline vaccine efficacy in those with immune systems that don't function optimally, even after the second shot, is as low as 59 to 72%, according to the CDC. So a third dose of vaccine serves with the intent of augmenting the initial vaccine response in immunocompromised individuals to try to get them to the levels more similar to that of their immunocompetent counterparts or those who have immune systems that function more optimally. Right now, a third dose of mRNA vaccine is recommended and available for those who are immunocompromised. And those immunocompromising conditions are things such as um, those who have cancer and malignancies that are on chemo or other cancer treatments, uh, those who've had organ transplants or stem cell transplants, those who have moderate to severe primary immunodeficiencies, um, advanced or untreated HIV, and anyone on high-dose corticosteroids or other immunosuppressants as guided by your discussion with your providers. Next slide. Immunity derived from natural infections and vaccines decreases over time. And as we discussed moments ago, this has been demonstrated to be true with the current COVID vaccine as well. So boosters are in booster shots are intended to re-stimulate that immunity after the initial antibody response starts to wane. So to reiterate that, the third doses is really meant for to help our immunocompromised individuals reach a level of vaccine response of normal patients after two doses. And the boosters are meant to address the general population's natural decline in immune response that occurs over time. And so, when we uh, right now, the FDA's advisory committee just met on September 17th, um, and they've made a preliminary recommendation to consider boosters at about six months for those who are older than 65, have severe illness like diabetes and obesity, and to consider for healthcare workers and teachers on the front lines. Right now, in this week, uh, hopefully in the coming days, the CDC uh, will be meeting to make formal uh, decisions and recommendations on that consideration. And the Biden administration is um, uh, right now planning to try to do boosters at eight months after vaccination. Next slide. And to remember that all of these things together are what's important for preventing and reducing transmission and protecting ourselves. We wanna continue to mask, continue to do good hand hygiene distance as much as able and get vaccinated. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Estelle. As I mentioned during my opening remarks, uh, we're ready for your questions now. And another one of our infectious disease experts, Dr. Brad Kuchel has been monitoring your questions in the chat. Dr. Kuchel, what can we help clarify for our viewers so far?
4: Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Warner. We're getting a lot of great questions in the chat as well as a number of uh, important ones that were pre-submitted. I'll start with uh, a number of questions about updates about the new variants and questions about are we working on boosters that are specific for uh, those new variants. So um, here at UT Southwestern, we have been doing sequencing of all of our positive cases uh, starting in January of 2021. And we, as uh, as well as other people around the country, are seeing that the by far and away the dominant variant that we're seeing is the Delta variant, greater than 99% of all cases uh, really in Texas, uh, as well as across the country, are the Delta variant. And this is likely due to its uh, increased risk of uh, transmission or contagiousness. We There have been reports, and we've reported a small number of cases with the Lambda and the Mu variant, uh, both of which originally developed in South, uh, South America. However, so far, none of the other variants uh, appear to have been able to outcompete the Delta variant. Um, Both Pfizer and Moderna are working on clinical trials right now with uh, Delta variant-specific boosters, and and so we expect to see the results from those studies. Uh, But the current um, booster doses that are being discussed that Dr. Estelle mentioned are with the original uh, mRNA vaccines. And then there was a second uh, category of questions that I'd like to pose to Dr. Estelle. Um, People have asked, you know, if I'm having mild symptoms like a headache or... A runny nose that that could be related to allergies. Uh, how do I know if it's COVID or not, and how do I know whether or not I should get tested? So, what do you what do you think, Doctor Estelle?
3: That is a really great question, Len. and and uh, it's it really is going to be sort of situation dependent. We want to have if you've been around anyone who's had COVID um, recently, if you have a known exposure, or if you've recently been engaging in activities that are at higher risk of having exposed you to COVID, then you're gonna be more sensitive to those more mild symptoms. That likelihood of that being COVID is gonna be much higher compared to if you've really just been in your house for the last two weeks, um, not interacting with other individuals. Certainly, if you have any fever, raised elevated temperature at all, I would definitely seek out testing um, regardless of your exposure history. Um, and, but I would strongly consider getting tested um, if you've been out and about in, in any settings, um, if you have even mild symptoms, especially if you're around many young children, as there is a lot of transmission there as well.
4: Thank you, I'll turn it back to Dr. Warner. Great, thank you, Dr. Kuchrel.
0: I'd now like to share a question someone wrote us, and that's about vaccination and infertility. Dr. Chimetti, is there a link?
1: Thank you. That's a really great question and something that's very important. Um, No, there is not a link between vaccination and infertility. There have been many studies now that are showing um, the rates of miscarriages in people who've been vaccinated uh, comparing to those who have not been vaccinated. And there is not any higher risk of a miscarriage in someone who is vaccinated. We have been seeing many, many cases in pregnant persons and the one surefire way to be able to protect your unborn and then newborn child is to become vaccinated yourself when you are pregnant because those antibodies will then pass on to your child.
0: Dr. McKinney, things uh, one of our most frequent questions we get on this program and certainly in our daily medical practice are from parents. We know that a little cough, a uh, slight runny nose, fatigues are signs of COVID as both you and Dr. Estella have mentioned but they're pretty common in school-aged kids as well. So how do we balance protecting our kids' health, but
2: also ensuring that they're not missing school unnecessarily? I was talking with my dad about this, who lived through the polio epidemic, who said my grandmother locked him in his home for an entire summer in Des Moines. That's probably not the right approach. (laughs) And yet, um, the fact that we do not have vaccines for children yet as we've seen with our hospitalizations and our positive results, means that they are particularly vulnerable right now. And so as this virus rips through the young population who are not protected, the likelihood that your child was exposed to someone who you may not even know if they were positive is high enough that I would continue to be quite cautious and talk with your pediatrician, consider getting a test, There are some symptoms that are less specific than others. But if you have a child who has a fever, in general, good school nurses would say already, please don't send them because they may be contagious. But in the time of COVID, I would escalate the workup sooner to say, we need to figure out whether this is COVID or not. And then if you have somebody who has asthma and is wheezing, and you know what an asthma attack looks like, and it's no different from that. There, too, your pediatrician can help you say, we don't want you to miss an entire semester uh, or fragments of a semester that interfere with childhood development. You know, the importance of learning how to read or learning your multiplication tables, that's huge. And so cautious, more cautious than we would have been before, more cautious until we can get the vaccine, but then also try not to just keep them so they don't have normal activities over the course of a whole semester. Thank you, Dr. McKay.
0: Dr. Kuchel, I'll toss it back to you so you can share a few more questions from our live chat. And thanks to those of you who are submitting questions.
4: Thank you again, Dr. Warner. We're getting a lot of interesting questions about the role of natural immunity. So I'll talk a little bit about what do we know after someone's had SARS-CoV-2 infection? We know that in the immediate, probably three to six months after that, you do have uh, protection, but we do know that that immunity can wane over time. We also know that some of the newer variants, like the beta variant and and the Delta variant, may be able to partially escape that natural immunity. Um, But what is really encouraging is the data showing that those who've had prior COVID-19 infection, if they go on and get a dose, at least one of the vaccine, if not both, they have really strong, what's called hybrid immunity that appears to be both long lasting as well as protecting them against all of the current variants that we're seeing. And so we are strongly recommending that once people are recovered from their acute episode, they're no longer infectious, uh, they're no, no longer sick, uh, that they should still get uh, one of the COVID vaccines. And it's been shown that that reduces their risk of reinfection uh, by up to twofold or more. Um, another question that that we're getting a lot of uh, to Dr. Trevetti maybe. Lots of people are having conversations with people about vaccine hesitancy. And, and one common topic that comes up is we don't know the long-term side effects about these vaccines. So how do you talk to people who bring that up in, in thinking through whether or not they should be getting the vaccine?
1: And I think that there are two things that we need to consider here. One is just what is the side effect profile of this vaccine in comparison with any of the other vaccines that we have for our children, such as flu vaccine, MMR, et cetera. Um, and what we're seeing here with the side effect profile is that maybe with the mRNA vaccine, you know, we see, we've see we had seen some increased lymph nodes or lymph node swelling. Um, and then there have been these cases reported of myocarditis. Um, But then the second consideration really is looking at the potential side effects of the COVID vaccine compared to what could happen if you actually became infected with SARS-CoV-2 itself. And what we have seen, there's been some studies that have come out from Israel um, looking at really the adverse effect and the adverse event profile. Having natural infection with COVID-19 puts you at much higher risk for having um, problems with kidney development, as well as maybe heart problems, developing blood clots in the legs, um, and many other potential organ systems being involved um, compared to the vaccine. Many of these symptoms might persist for long periods of time, so we are still really learning about the long-term effects of natural infection from COVID-19. Um, And so, so far we have not really seen those types of long-term effects from anybody who's been vaccinated.
0: Dr. Tavetti, I'll ask you a follow-up question to that question, which is side effects for booster doses. So, you know, we are seeing a number of people now getting booster doses and with guidance later this week, we're expecting to be um, providing more booster doses. Are there differences in side effects from the first two doses of these mRNA vaccines or the first dose of J&J and a booster dose that we're hearing about?
1: Yeah, so many of the side effects are actually similar, but seeing increasing numbers of people who are experiencing some fatigue, muscle aches, um, and maybe just some low-grade fevers, which are similar to what some people had experienced with their first two doses. Um, but looking to see that slightly higher percentages of people might experience these symptoms compared to previous with the first two doses.
0: Dr. Estelle, I'll go back to you. The uh, this is booster dose um, week in terms of the discussions that we're all hearing from the FDA and the CDC. So we already know a little bit about how that is playing out and many of us will not qualify um, for boosters um, because we're healthy and received a a previous COVID vaccine. And so tell us what that means for us. Are we are we seeing these effects um, waning and how should we think about whether we've received the Pfizer, the Moderna or the J&J vaccine with what we know so far?
3: So as we've talked about, yes, waning immunity or that um, immune response is sort of declines over time or the briskness of it, um, that is true and that is happening. However, it is also important to note that this far out, the data is still showing very strong effectiveness at preventing severe disease, i.e. those needing to go to urgent care, getting hospitalized, and dying from it. Um, even in that setting, we are seeing breakthrough cases that occur, uh, but with very mild or asymptomatic disease being the vast majority of that. So I would i would i would say that right now even if you don't qualify for a booster shot at this time the vaccine is still working for you and it's also important to note that this is also why it's still important to continue with good hand hygiene to continue masking where when you're going out and um, with other individuals um, and to continue distancing as much as you can um, but uh, these these vaccines are still um, working very well even at a nine months out at preventing uh, hospitalization and death um, just by virtue of looking at the proportions of those who are hospitalized is uh, the vast majority of those are, are unvaccinated.
0: Thank you, Dr. Estelle. So Dr. McKenney, these are complicated times for parents as their kids are back in school for many uh, families, the kids are back in school for a month or so. Uh, what additional advice can you share with parents who want their kids to be able to be kids but still have to navigate the ongoing pandemic while they're learning?
2: I think this is gonna be a really interesting generational cohort. Um, decades from now, they will all be much more sophisticated at things like epidemiology and virology than previous generations. Some of that can start at home, You know, talking with your children in a stage specific, appropriate way about what's going on ways that they can help stay safe, ways that they can help other people stay safe. And that includes things like the vaccine, which still is by far the most effective tool we have. And it's been just a gift. Um, And then also things like masking and trying to think about your activities with other people and separation. And even really thoughtful discussions about who's at risk And, you know, doing something for you, but also for your friend and for your friend's grandmother. And so I think that this is going to be a real opportunity to educate our children about science and about how to be kind fellow citizens. Um, And then try not to make it so they're just freaking out. And kids at different stages will internalize these messages in different ways. And so asking follow-up questions about, well, what do you think about this can lead to some just just beautiful conversations. But I think teaching them about vaccines, masking, some elements of viral transmission, this is a real opportunity and it shouldn't be wasted. Thank you. Dr. Kuchel, we'll
0: toss it back to you. I know you've been monitoring the questions in the chat.
4: Yeah, we got a lot of good questions coming in. Uh, this one I'd like to post to Dr. Trevetti. I know you talked about earlier that there's no link with infertility, but any updates on the safety of the vaccines in pregnancy And what are we learning about the severity of COVID in pregnancy?
1: Yeah, so um, great questions and certainly relevant to what we're seeing right now. We've been hearing about stories in the news almost every single day about pregnant women who have either experienced miscarriage um, from having had COVID-19 or um, pregnant women who have either lost their lives or sometimes even, unfortunately, the lives of their unborn child or their you know, their newborn child um, who have become infected at the time of delivery, perhaps. So um, we are certainly seeing severe illness in pregnant women. Um, and this is really important to consider because During pregnancy, your immune system overall is slightly suppressed compared to when you're not pregnant. Um, And so while these things will help you to maintain a healthy pregnancy, we do know that becoming infected with COVID-19 can have really harmful effects, especially when it comes to circulation to the placenta, providing adequate nutrition to the baby. Um, And then, of course, even the impact if you as the mother were to become severely ill and what that means as far as the health of the newborn child. Um, So um, what was your first question again, Brad?
4: (laughs) Yeah, any increasing data on the safety of the vaccines in pregnancy? We know they were originally excluded from the clinical trials, but what do we know about are they safe to get the vaccine in pregnancy?
1: Yes, they are certainly safe. We've had um, many studies that have looked at basically real live examples and situations of cohorts of women who have been vaccinated, over 30,000 women having been vaccinated um, compared to those who have not been vaccinated. And again, there has been no increase in the number of women who experienced a miscarriage, loss of a pregnancy, or really any other types of serious adverse effects from vaccination. So they have been found to be very safe. And really there is no um, bad time during the pregnancy to get vaccinated. So we don't worry about whether you are in your first trimester or second trimester, or third, or even if you are in stages of considering pregnancy.
4: Yeah, thank you for that wonderful information. I'll turn now to Dr. McKinney. Uh, lots of questions about vaccines in children. And I know you touched on this, but any updates on timelines for when vaccines may be available for different groups of children? And then specifically, what are we learning about the risk of myocarditis, particularly in adolescent males? And, and how, how should parents uh, be thinking about the vaccines in that group?
2: Those are very timely questions, and in fact, you have to be careful in these settings that you don't pretend you can predict the future. However, thus far, the system for vaccine evaluation in the United States has gone quite well. The data streams are large, they are thoroughly collected, they are complete, and as is usually the case for new medicines, they have started with one population and expanded to others with the children being really the burning need right now. So as of right now, if I were to predict, it looks as if the preliminary data, which I haven't seen, this is only from news reports, uh, coming from the drug company trials suggest that, as it was for adults for kids, first in the five to 12 year old age bracket, that they also mount quite compellingly positive antibody titer responses to the vaccine, which is great. The dose adjustments are not a trivial issue, that was part of this study. Uh, The Pfizer vaccine appears to use one third of the dose of the mRNA as the adult vaccine, but otherwise it's the same composition and so it should be quite similar. If everything goes optimally, experts are talking about maybe this fall we'll have access to pediatric vaccines, hopefully early in the next calendar year we will, and my hope and Punch is that it won't just be the Pfizer vaccine, but it'll hit it'll hit the market first. Then, in terms of myocarditis, um, by the way, we have seen myocarditis in MISC and in COVID. And so uh, when you think about a crude additional risk, it's important to realize that the virus itself can cause serious heart problems but a specific subpopulation that deserves special attention and they're getting it from the FDA and the CDC is uh, young adult males, where it appears as if in older teenage males, they may have a little higher risk of having myocarditis, which also occurs in things like influenza B where oftentimes it's that population that we notice. And so they are being watched very, very carefully. But at this point, Rigorous studies looking at the risk of myocarditis from vaccine versus the risk of getting COVID and the effects of that still, in my opinion, clearly tip in favor of getting vaccine with close attention to detail and following up with the data sets that we've got and continue to collect.
4: Thank you for those those great answers. Um, Maybe a question now for Dr. Estelle. Um, Lots of questions about just the practicalities of these booster doses. So can you take them if you're getting another vaccine, like your flu shot? Uh, and what do we know so far about the idea of mixing and matching? So if you've got two doses of Moderna, should you wait for a Moderna for your third dose? Or is it okay to get Pfizer? So so what do we know so far about some of these practical questions?
3: Yeah. Um, so uh the question about uh, can I get this uh, fight, these uh, COVID vaccines with flu, the answer is yes. Um, flu season is rapidly approaching and really upon us. Um, and uh, so we want to be very vigilant as all the respiratory viruses start to increase and in spread during this uh, respiratory virus season, that we don't we want to avoid getting any of them <laughs> really. You know, we don't want to get COVID, we don't want to get flu. Get, don't want to get RSV. So, uh, we highly recommend that you get your flu vaccine, which is um, for anyone six months or older and for pregnant individuals and to get the COVID vaccine. They can be co-administered together at the same time safely. Um, Initially, uh, they had requested a break between about two weeks before and after between those vaccines, Um, but uh, it's been shown that that is not necessary. It's safe to co-administer. So we wanna be on the lookout for that. And then the other question was about, I think it was timing, was that correct? Uh,
4: Mixing and matching. So if if you've got, Moderna originally? Should you get Pfizer or should you wait for a Moderna booster?
3: Yeah. So the recommendation is to get the matching vaccine um, uh, modality. So if you got Pfizer, uh, then to get the booster with Pfizer. If you got Moderna, to get the booster with Moderna. Um, that being said, if there is no availability of um, one versus the other, um, it is okay to, to get that
0: And Dr. Cuchel, perhaps I'll ask you or Dr. Tavetti to take the next step on that answer, which is, do we know when we might hear more about the Moderna third dose or a second dose of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine?
4: Yeah, so I'm happy to take that because we've been getting a lot of questions, you know, all the talk's been about Pfizer. So what's going on with the other vaccines? So just as an update, so the Moderna vaccine has submitted their data for full approval. The FDA is looking at that currently and we anticipate in the coming days to weeks that that will also receive full approval similar to the Pfizer vaccine. The Moderna is also going to be submitting their data for a booster or a third dose for their vaccine as well. That's taken a little bit more time, however, because the Moderna booster will likely be a half dose. So rather than the original 100 microgram, they're looking at using a 50 microgram dose. And that's partly because the early early data suggests that vaccine was maybe a little bit more potent. And so you may not need as high of a dose for your third dose. So once that's submitted to the FDA, uh, we anticipate that sometime in the next uh, few weeks to month that will also be looked at and approved. And then finally, and I think encouragingly, uh, J&J just reported on, uh, again, in press release, so we'll have to to look at and analyze the data, on the impact of getting a second dose of J&J, which also appears to boost and strengthen the duration and the the amount of immune protection. And so the FDA will be reviewing that data and most likely recommending a second shot for those uh, who have received J&J.
0: And perhaps I'll ask a quick follow-up to Dr. McKinney on the very good questions that were asked earlier about kids. We're we're learning more with the data obviously for kids in that age six to age 12 age group. Any idea when we might know more about toddlers or preschool children and when they might be eligible for a vaccine?
2: Yeah, the short answer is I don't know, people are moving as quickly as possible. That data set will be the last to be collected and reported. Um, I am hoping that in the next year, but that's just a guess, that's just a guess. So far, the interval steps from one age group to another have gone without a hitch. Um, But we wanna be very thorough and thoughtful about this. I predict that the five to 12 year olds will probably have options to help protect them uh, and that'll clearly be before the younger kids.
0: And what about what we're seeing in terms of COVID infections in that younger age group? You're obviously at one of the busiest hospitals in the state. Tell us what you're seeing in those younger children.
2: Yeah, one of the challenges with our pediatric cases is while early in the pandemic, when I would get a call about a patient who we thought might have COVID, I was able informally to sort of apply pretest probability in terms of well do they have cancer or do they have other pre-existing conditions one of the profoundly humbling parts of the delta variant spread through a higher population is a higher percentage of the population is we cannot predict a priori who's going to get it and who's going to get it in a severe fashion and that's been one of the things that's really been a challenge so we have had newborns with it. We have had toddlers with it. Uh, with our younger kids, we've had a lot of people with the MISC. So um, this is a pediatric disease. Like some other uh, viruses in this family and diseases like SARS and MERS, it appears as if adults were hit hardest. Um, but just because you're a child does not mean you're safe. Dr. Kuchel, I see we got some more good questions coming.
4: Yeah, we do. I'll throw this one to Dr. we for getting some good questions about what have we learned? Uh, obviously, long term, the vaccines are going to help us get out of this. But in the short term, what have we learned about the effectiveness of masking and, and other interventions like that? And what should parents be doing in terms of advocating or encouraging masking, say, in a school setting?
1: Perfectly relevant questions, especially since I do have two school-age children um, and, you know, these almost become conversations that we have every day. So, I mean, you know, when we think about how COVID is spread, this is a respiratory virus so it's predominantly spread by your respiratory secretions, whether those are in a larger droplets, as you might see with the coughing and sneezing, or sometimes even in smaller airborne type particles that we've been hearing about. And those can stay suspended in the air. And a lot of this is what went into the guidance from the CDC about determining what your exposure might have been with six feet distancing and 15 minutes of time. Um, and, you know, really when we have a mask, what it does is it not only Uh, protects us maybe from breathing in what might be in the environment, but it also, the main thing is that it helps to prevent us from shedding those particles into the environment um, around us. We know that indoor spaces are a much higher risk setting than outdoor spaces, um, and things that can be done to help, you know, decrease the risk of COVID in those settings are to have some of the distancing between people in a room and having really adequate ventilation as well. And this is assuming that everyone is masked. Um, so some of the conversations that parents can have with their children is really to make sure that, you know when they're engaging in close contact with another child, You know sometimes they have these reading pods um, where they're reading in groups, really to have everyone be masked at that time. You don't necessarily need to have a mask on when you're outdoors during recess. Um, lunchtime has become an interesting question because you know last year many of the schools had these plexiglass shields or different types of measures that can help put some distance between kids and those things have since gone away. So um, you know you tell your child take your mask off for when you're eating your lunch and as soon as you're done eating to put it back on. Always wash your hands and try to avoid touching your face and your mouth, which we know can be really challenging for children. So they understand that when they put on a mask, it's to protect themselves and to protect others around them. Children inherently want to protect their friends. They want to protect their parents and they want to feel like they are contributing towards a worthy cause. So usually, um, you know, they're, they're right on board with wearing a mask um, if that's something and the guidance that has been given to them.
4: Thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Estelle, this is a, a important question, I think, is what do we think the long term with uh, COVID is going to look like? Is this virus going to disappear or is it going to become what we've heard called endemic and what does that mean? And a related question, do you think we're going to need to get an annual COVID shot like with the flu vaccine or do you, do you think uh, that won't nece- be necessary?
3: I think that we're going to, COVID is going to be around for the long term. It is not going to be around forever in the state that we're currently experiencing it as a pandemic that has um, this risk and in our for us, our present state here in Texas and in Dallas, of causing significant disruption to our healthcare delivery system. Um, And so what we're trying to get out of is this pandemic stage where it's causing large amounts of hospitalizations and death, which is awful in and of itself because of the um, detriment that it causes to individuals and those families, but it's also causing harm to our healthcare delivery system. Once um, we get enough people who are immune, either via vaccine, which we hope to um, augment as much as possible, um, or through natural immunity of having past infection, we're going to hopefully start to see um, the proportion of people who wind up in the hospital and dying from it go down um, to a level that we can, can sort of just call this more of an, an endemic issue. Um, what we don't totally know yet, is this going to be seasonal the way that it is with flu, or is it going to be a sort of year-round endemic um, issue? Um, and so uh, some of the uh, potential future uh, booster vaccine or yearly vaccine um, habits will be somewhat dependent on what kind of cyclical um Uh, nature that it takes on, which we uh, are really kind of yet to see. Um, But I think that we will probably be still hearing about this and dealing with this infection in the long term, um, but hopefully in a much different way than we are now. Um, And so that's why we want to get on top of this as quickly as possible so we can uh, beat the next mutation before it happens.
4: Yeah, thank you for that information. Maybe a good question. We're getting lots of questions about, you know, how to combat misinformation. So I'll pitch this maybe to Dr. McKinney. You know, some common questions that that some people maybe are bringing up is uh, people who've gotten the vaccine, are they able to shed the virus and, and infect other people who are unvaccinated or the or can the vaccines change or alter your DNA and just in general terms. How do you encourage the lay public? Where are good resources they can go to get credible information when they're hearing so so much uh, confusing information?
2: Moving forward, we're all going to have to figure out how to wade through a rapidly changing landscape with sort of a cacophony of, of information sources. Um, I'm biased because I'm a pediatrician, but I have found the American Academy of Pediatrics to be lucid and cogent and sober about things. Uh, The CDC and the FDA, I believe, done a very good job. Uh, There are some news outlets that I find helpful because they're now reporting things faster than our usual scientific journals turn them around because that takes longer. Um, And some journalists in particular have done a really good job. Uh, the series in the Atlantic was something I started reading early on and that's gotten Pulitzers for some of their staff writers. And so from day to day, trying to figure out what's happening, you're going to have to find somebody you trust and you're going to have to see how that holds up to reality. In terms of some of the disinformation or some of the discussions about things, um, the fact that this is an mRNA vaccine, I think is probably what historians are going to remember 50 years from now. This is a major, major human breakthrough, and it has lots of implications, ranging from the ability to make lots of vaccine fast to the ability to fine-tune it to new mutations as they come up. Our species has never been better equipped to deal with a virus, and it's a gift, and the history books are going to record this as such. Importantly, and I don't mean to geek out about nucleic acids, but RNA does not change your DNA, it does not. And in fact, RNA is very, very susceptible to being broken down by enzymes called RNases. And that's why it takes so much babying of these vaccines to deliver them safely. These cold chains and keeping them at certain temperatures and wrapping them in in a layer of lipids. Uh, RNA does not hang around. RNA is, is, is unstable by, by its very chemical nature. That is not going to change our genome. It's not gonna change our genetics. It's going to deliver a snippet, which is so much better than giving somebody a live virus, a snippet of what it takes to fight this virus on the spike protein, for example. And it's it's a gift. And in fact, it may be that over time, we're gonna find other diseases that we've desperately tried to make vaccines for may be amenable to this technology. So, So the RNA element is actually one of the strengths of this whole story. But there will always be questions that come up about, well, how about this? How about that? And and people are going to need to have people they trust. And then again, we're biased because we're all doctors, but hopefully, hopefully we all have someone that we've built a relationship with that we can ask their advice about what they're noticing. Because right now... Everybody with good medical training should be paying attention to this and helping their patients navigate things.
0: Dr. Kuchel and Dr. Civetti, this a topic that you and I discuss frequently in our roles at UT Southwestern is travel. So this is the time of year when people are beginning to, typically they would book their holiday travel. How should people, how should families be thinking about travel this holiday?
1: So I can take that. Um, And then Dr. Kuchel can certainly weigh in because he's been helping to navigate that here uh, at UT Southwestern as well. Um, I think you know the important things to think about are what are the destinations that you are thinking of, making sure and double checking on the CDC website and the State Department websites to see if it's even safe to travel to those areas. There can be multiple factors that make an area unsafe for travel, such as political unrest, but then also looking at the levels of COVID-19 transmission in those countries. Um, the New York Times webpage has a great world map that you can look at to see what are the numbers of new cases that are occurring um, in that region over the past two weeks. The other things to consider are, um, you know, what, how are you planning to get there? Are you planning to fly, drive, um, or some other type of transportation? And then the types of activities that you want to engage in. Will they be predominantly outdoor versus indoor? Are you going to a location that is in peak season where the likelihood of meeting other people who could possibly be infected with COVID is pretty high? Um, And then lastly, but probably more importantly, is to really think about your family and your individual situation. How many of you in the family are vaccinated? Are there people who are still susceptible to severe disease, maybe despite vaccination, that if they were to get COVID, it could be something disastrous for them? So really thinking about balancing the pluses and benefits of a vacation with the potential risks um, and the implications for your own family,
4: yeah, I think dr. I think Dr. Trevetti's comments are spot on, and I don't have much else to add to that. The other thing that I would say, you know right now, the news has been primarily focusing on boosters, and those are certainly important for certain groups of individuals to to in- enhance the individual protection that they have but I think we can't lose sight of the global vaccine campaign uh, because I've heard it said until we're all safe no one is safe and so there's always the possibility that even if everyone here you know has access to a vaccine there are many parts of the rest of the world that still haven't had that access and so it's important that we continue to do our part uh, you know as the U.S. and as the global community to be sure that the vaccines are shared equitably uh, because that's ultimately what's going to bring an end to the pandemic and and allow us to get back to traveling and all of these other wonderful things that we love to do
0: thanks dr kucho i think we have time for one last question
4: um yeah so maybe i'll, I'll flip the script and, and turn it back to you dr werner what's it been like navigating uh this you know leading a health system and and you know what have you learned throughout this and and where do you see things going forward how do you think this has improved medicine you know for us moving forward
0: well thanks for that. You know, the the work of the health system communities has been inspirational I think throughout the pandemic and the dedication of all of our employees, of all of our physicians and all the providers, the nurses at the front lines has been very inspiring and I think uh, something that we'll all remember for a long time. Fortunately, we're you know, we're optimistic that with the booster doses, with the numbers of people being vaccinated and all the hard work that's going on in our communities we are seeing progress, and so we continue to be hopeful that you know all the hard work that's gone in to the last 18 months uh, will hopefully be ending soon, and we'll all be getting back to the to delivering healthcare. So we're, you know, I guess my emotions around this are just one of thankfulness um, for all the dedication of all the healthcare workers across the planet as we've all battled this pandemic. So it's really been an amazing period in history, world history, about how we battled this together. And just as Dr. McKinney said. I suspect there'll be a lot of lessons learned that will help us um, combat other diseases and other health problems as we exit the pandemic. So thanks for the question. And I wanna thank uh, you, Dr. Castrell, and all of our guests for being with us today and for sharing your expertise. For those of you who've watched the program, thanks for joining us. And we wanna invite those of you who wanna learn more or watch more to, v- to look at our What to Know programming on our website, which is ut- uh, utswmed.org backslash what to know. You can also visit our COVID-19 vaccination webpage at UT Southwestern and, uh, and learn more about vaccinations as well. So thanks again for tuning in. And on behalf of all of us here at UT Southwestern,
2: we hope you all stay safe and stay healthy.